Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. I think a board needs to be made up of business leaders who happen to come from a particular bent because you can't get to CMO, CFO without having come up through somewhere. So you do have a bent and you have a area that probably is your trigger point that you care about. So you'll have people on there who always ask about the people in the business. You'll have other people ask about the margins. But all of you have to have enough curiosity and intellectual capability to want to know about stuff that's not in your area. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Cheryl Heyman about a range of things, about non-traditional skills and what directors with these non-traditional skills bring and why they're needed for great governance. And we'll also touch on transformational growth and the role of digital strategy. We might even touch on a few things from the AICD Governance Summit, which we've both just come from yesterday and the day before. Firstly, let me tell you about Cheryl. She's on a range of boards. So she's on the boards of Shriro Holdings, HGL Limited, Chartered Accounts ANZ, Darlinghurst Theatre Company, Peer Support Australia, and she's also a member of the Digital Experts Advisory Committee and an HCF councillor. It was only in looking this up I didn't even realise that HCF had a council structure, so I was interested to see that as well. Cheryl is an experienced ASX non-executive director an ASX Remuneration and Nominations Committee Chair, and she was previously a C-suite marketing director with global food and retail restaurant companies, including George Western Foods and Yum Restaurants. Cheryl advises companies that want to achieve digital transformation at scale, grow through diversification, innovation, and customer-centric strategies. Her background in marketing is considered a non-traditional path to the boardroom, but she utilises her expertise, diverse perspective, and whole-of-business leadership experience to guide companies that want to disrupt and grow. She's a passionate mentor of women of all ages and stages of their professional life, whether in the corporate sector or in the entrepreneurial space. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Cheryl. Thank you, Helia. It's lovely to be here. 
So, Cheryl, before we talk about non-traditional skills, transformation, growth, all of those things, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Tell me about your upbringing. What lessons did you learn? What did you get up to? What were the leading influences on how you thought and what you did? Yeah, sure. I feel privileged to have had the background I did. I had two working-class parents and uh, particularly a father who came from war-torn Poland as a boy, had lost his father in the war and came to Australia with his mother and his brother and had to start as a non-English-speaking teenager in upskill himself through education. So, and my mother had came out of country New South Wales and a very traditional Aussie family, but again, they weren't wealthy. She'd lived through the depression and uh, knew what it took to build yourself from nothing. So both of them came from very grassroots beginnings. And I think why I feel privileged is I came through a family that had incredible values. And one of the values they instilled in me, which I hope I've instilled in my own family, is that of working hard, the importance of education. All my father ever asked my children was, what are you going to do at university or what are you going to do when you leave school? He was obsessed with the fact that you needed to be educated because he learned that being educated allowed him to have a comfortable life in Australia and everything he did was for family. So the values that I came from through my parents, I think when I reflect, I feel really grateful for And until the day my father died at 90 a couple of years ago, he was still asking my children, if they were through university, what were they going to do now for work? Mm. And I was one of two daughters. I have two daughters. And he never considered that as girls we would do anything other than be educated and work. And that love for education is something I have. I'm a lifelong learner and I'm passionate about learning and the importance of it, whether it's a direct skill that you're wanting to learn or just something you're interested in. I think that degree of curiosity is really critical. And then my mother was just generous. You know, my my cousins talk about the fact that Auntie Val always gave the best presents. My mother never forgot anybody. She never excluded anybody. She kept articles about long-lost cousins who I didn't even know existed. You know, she was proud of everybody's achievements. And I think I also got that from her. So Mm -hmm. I try and be supportive and inclusive. And I think that's made me who I am today. Mm. And they're two key skills in the boardroom, aren't they? Curiosity and inclusion. A board cannot operate effectively without those things. So you can see how that set you up well for what you do today. Yes, that's right. You know, we've just talked about some of those skills Not everybody defines, I guess, curiosity and inclusion as skills. Maybe they're attributes, whatever they may be, but I think they are key things to have in the boardroom. What would you say are the traditional skills and therefore what are the non-traditional skills and why are they important in the boardroom? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about diversity and inclusiveness and we've done a lot of that in these last couple of days at the Governance Summit as well because it's very topical. But when I started my board career, which was about 14 years ago, I sort of jumped off the cliff and did some consulting and then considered maybe I'd do boards. So I didn't plan it. I just jumped off the cliff straight into it as an idea, which is sort of my style. Yes. But certainly back then, the boardrooms were full of accountants and lawyers and tax experts. And I have loads of friends who do that and I'm not trying to bag those skills out. But Note to clearly, self, I'm a lawyer, but yeah. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. But keep going, yes. And I understand why it was how it was. 
unfortunately, I think today there's a still a prevalence of that. Mm -hmm. And there's a prevalence of we should just pick a functional skill and whack them around the boardroom. So we suddenly technology's big. So we better have a technology expert. But all the really enlightened directors and chairs will tell you that you don't want a board where you just turn to one person mm. when there's a tech question or whether there's a tax question. Clearly, you need someone who can share audit and risk and so on. But if we're all the same, you're not getting anything other than a, our skills from where we come from and B, that kind of objectivity around other areas. Mm. I think people with non-traditional skills, and so I came out of a marketing background, but I encompass in my non-traditional skills people from sales, people from HR, you know, all the people actually that are in a business mm. asked or tasked with growing the business, not adding up, mm -hmm. not managing the bottom line only, but there are three or four main skills that are charged with growing revenue. And if you grow revenue and you grow customers and you grow volume, you will get profit. Yes. So I just think you have to have that skill diversity. And just circling back to something you said, you know, I think curiosity, learning, challenging, uh, Gordon Cairns in the conference talked about a board that dissented but then came out with a decision. Mm. They should be skills on the matrix. You know, why do we only put, you know, able to chair REM, able to chair a board, has worked in manufacturing? Like, I'm not saying those aren't important, but why don't we add mm. some other types of attributes on there, things that would traditionally be considered soft skills? Well, it's interesting. Even when you listed their sales, HR, marketing, in my head what I heard is that's all the people stuff. Correct. It's the internal people stuff. You know, you can't do sales and marketing without knowing about your customer, without getting in the heads of people. HR, you can't do without getting in the heads of your internal people. We know the people stuff is key. And interestingly, when I first started applying for boards, mm. some of the boards and through some of the search firms that I was not put forward for was on the basis that I was considered to not be able to read a P&L. <sighs> and I'd worked for Yum Restaurants, which was a daily business, I'd worked in baking, which is a daily business. Mm -hmm. And if we put something up that didn't turn a profit that day or mm -hmm. deliver the right margin, then we were asked to change it by the next day. So to say that we as marketers didn't have line of sight to return on investment was really an antiquated view. And it's one of the reasons that myself and some of my colleagues who come out of the kind of more the creative end of the functional skill sets considered not suitable because there's an assumption that we're not financially literate, which could probably not be further from the truth. How did you then get around that or change the views of people? How did you then end up in the boardroom? I'm a bit of a show me, don't tell me, mm. right? And I believe in that at all times. I tell my children the same thing. So I think you bring change and you get change by demonstrating that you can deliver on what you say. Mm. So I guess... My first couple of boards, one came through applying, which was an ad I'd seen on women on boards, mm -hmm. and that was for a not-for-profit. And the other board I got, which was a listed company called Clover, which I got very early on, was because I'd worked with that company. I'd put their ingredient in bread and marketed it for Tip Top, and they had worked with me and knew I understood their product. So they called me and just said, look, there's a board we're all going. Are you thinking about boards? I said, yes. They said, you should go into the mix. So I went into the mix. It took three months for the recruiter to put me in front of the chair who then said, you're the first person I've met who actually meets the brief. 
And lo and behold, they put myself and somebody else onto the board and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. So I ended up on a listed board because I had bothered to tell lots of people I was looking to do boards. Yeah. And it wasn't even conscious. I'm not a conscious networker or mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't back then, but it is a lesson that I tell other people I mentor now, which is tell anybody who'll listen what you want to do. Yep. Because what's the downside? Mm. Seriously, I mean, nine and a half out of ten people will listen to you. They won't necessarily give you a job. You'll get into the front of their, you know, frontal lobe. Yes. Keep get some awareness. Them. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm drawing back to the other theme from your childhood, actually, around inclusion and thinking, I mean, I absolutely agree that we need more diversity in the boardroom of skills, of types of people, all of those sorts of things. But I'm wondering then about that decision-making with that diverse group. And if you don't have a board of, an, of accountants, for example, if you've got your board of accountants, then they all test the financials collectively and individually. If you've just got one accountant and one lawyer and one marketer and so on, do you find people turning to you in the boardroom and going, oh, Cheryl, you're the marketer. What do you think about this? Oh, she thinks this, therefore I'm comfortable with it as well. How do you ensure those diverse skills also engage in the conversations that are outside their skill set? I think a board needs to be made up of business leaders mm -hmm. who happen to come from a particular bent because you can't get to CMO, CFO, mm -hmm. any other of the C-suite roles and CEO without having come up through somewhere. Mm. So you do have a bent and you have a area that probably is your trigger point that you care about. So you'll have people on there who always ask about the people in the business. You'll have other people ask about the margins and all of that. But all of you have to have the enough curiosity and intellectual capability to want to know about stuff that's not in your area mm. in order to have the conversation. So I think it's incumbent on directors who sit around a table today to actually continually upskill in all sorts of areas and be across the contemporary business landscape. And the thing that makes me go, oh dear, is when I see directors who just say, I don't need to know that, or I might say, are you going to the Governance Summit? Nah, why would I do that? Mm. Now, I get not everything's for everybody and you all get very senior, but you have to have a means by which you continually know enough to ask the dumb question mm -hmm. or to be curious enough to ask management who are typically younger and fresher and deeper in the business, of course, mm -hmm. the right questions. You don't have to have the answers. You just need to know what to ask. Yes. And I think that's the challenge that people expect a particular director to be able to answer a particular question. And, of course, in some cases that's true. But in a lot of cases it's more the asking that's more clever mm. than the answering. Absolutely. And it prompts the thinking. I think sometimes your role as a board director is almost as a mentor in a way of the executive team and to ask them the questions to get them to explore. Yeah, and if you have a CEO or C-suite of management who don't want to be asked, mm. who don't ever say anything other than, yep, we've looked at that, yep, no, we, we've done that, yes, no, we're on that, mm -hmm. you know, which raises lots of cynical hackles on my neck, I think you've got people who are a bit stuck on their own treadmill and not necessarily looking to find ways to grow their business. So speaking of growing the business, let's pivot then to transformational growth. You've been involved in some organisations that have been through that. Can you give us an, an example of how that works and what boards should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I, we heard about it again at the summit as well and mm. so it is very topical. You have to know what your purpose is mm. and you have to understand 
what you would like your purpose to be. And then you need to look at what the gap is. You need to understand where the markets are going, where the trends are, where customers and consumers and stakeholders are going. So you need to define how you want to change your business to do that. You then have to put a really objective lens over the capability and capacity of your business to do those changes. If you can't do them directly, you need to look to acquire or partner or something to get you that pivotal change. I mean, we're seeing banks do it in order to get innovation. We're seeing other organisations bring in startups in order to push forward their digital agendas or their e-commerce agendas. Mm -hmm. And that's a really smart way to do it because you are recognising you don't have the capability yourself or the agility or speed that you need because transformation in today's world takes a lot of speed, mm. also takes a lot of guts and it takes a lot of desire, mm. right? And so you need people with the right balance of managing risk to make that happen. So, for instance, you know, COVID, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about COVID, so I won't go down that rabbit hole particularly, but it forced people and businesses to do things they were thinking about much faster. And if they didn't do them, they got left behind. Mm. And if they aren't now using that to really grow, then they're really going to miss the new landscape. And mm. what's happened is a lot of lot of startups have gone crazy during this time because they can. Yeah. Right? They have the appetite for it. So that's the broad and the agility sort of, to do it. Absolutely. The agility, mm. they're not scared. Maybe they've got less to lose mm. in a sense because mm -hmm. they're not turning a Titanic and risking a lot of money necessarily. There's money around. People are attracted to invest in things that look like they're going to grow and are exciting. So I think that's the key. So, you know, a live example for me would be, well, one is with uh, chartered accountants, Australia and New Zealand. You know, we were working, and not me, the management team and led by the CEO and, and a specialised committee, were working to bring technological change to the delivery of that program and other programs associated with our business to what is a younger generation typically. Mm -hmm. Now, they pivoted so fast when COVID happened and those things went live overnight because we had kids in the program who were suddenly not in their offices, who were not at university even, who needed to be able to access and do their courses and then actually sit their exams because it's a very hard program. Mm -hmm. The modulized, modulized versions, the technology behind that, making people accessible to it because not everybody's sitting with two computers and a laptop and an iPad and a mobile phone, you know, you've got to remember a lot of people in regional, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of stuff at their uh, disposal. Mm -hmm. So we needed to make sure all members who wanted to go through the program could access things. So that team there did an incredible job. And as a board, it was our job to just go yes to things, to understand enough to make those decisions and to pivot and did every thing that got delivered go well the first time? No, mm. of course not. Mm -hmm. um, but we heard through the conference that if you wait till it's perfect, you'll be left behind. Yeah, You have to start because if you don't start and make mistakes, you never learn. Mm -hmm. And if you never learn, you never change. And so for me, that's a great example yeah. of a of new change, delivering to what membership wanted. In that example, did the board up front have a conversation maybe about risk appetite? Because presumably in that environment, your risk appetite changes and all of a sudden you're giving the organisation a bit more leash than you would otherwise do. Did the board have that sort of conversation? How did it go? How was that communicated with the executive and so on? 
Yeah, so like everyone else, we're working like the clappers. Um, it was weekly, <laughs> if not daily at times, discussions, not only on this project, but on lots of things, obviously, to do with the health and safety of our teams and so on. The board knew what the overall investment was going to be, so the decisions were about speeding up mm. that investment, really putting our trust in the management. We have a fantastic executive team in that business, and they were culturally super strong. You know, that group had been through some internal challenges. They'd been through bushfires, mm. which affected a lot of our people in the country particularly, and then we had COVID. So that team went through three massive changes. So they had to know the board supported them. So one of our key roles was to instill in them the confidence to make some decisions that didn't always have to come back to us, but they knew where we stood. They knew that we had faith in them and they knew they trusted us. So I guess the risk the board were taking, if you like, was to instill that confidence. Mm. We had already made the decisions around the financial piece of it. Yep. And happily, we also didn't lose any key people at all. So we were very fortunate to keep our staff. So I think those things really work. I mean, if you're going to take risks and transform your business, you have to be able to delegate and trust mm. the people that you want to get it done to let them go. So you need to loosen the leash. Mm -hmm. It's as your children get bigger, you find yourself loosening the leash. It's a bit like that. Yeah. And so you said that they, they had a strong culture as they went into it. In the boardroom, how do you know that that's the case? Well, there were some classic ways, like we, we run the standard one-on-ones with each of the executive team, et cetera, et cetera, through the equivalent of the people mm -hmm. and remuneration committee, which I sit on. So we do that every year mm -hmm. in detail. And we visibly seen the culture change from quite a siloed, organization, of which, which is very common, I've seen it all across FFMCG, which is my background, mm. to one where these, everybody talked with across each other and with each other as a group. So you, could, you can sort of viscerally feel it, you mm. know, and you see it in the results. You see it in the joy, you see it in people supporting each other as mm. opposed to keeping their hands around their, their patch. It definitely flows through. So I think it flows down from the board culturally and then back up from the team up and mm. beyond. And you'd also mentioned in there that things were happening at a pace and uh, not everything always went smoothly. You know, again, to extend your analogy about letting the kids go, you know, the kids could then come back at some stage and go, oh, sorry, mum, I stuffed up. So as a board, when things didn't go well, I'm sure you were expecting it, but how, again, what were the practicalities of it? What were the boardroom conversations about that, the executive conversations? How was it managed? Uh, it came down to being customer-centric so mm -hmm. or membership-centric if you're talking about chartered accountants. It was about the messaging. So the speed of communications, the constancy of the communications being completely taken on the chin where the errors had occurred and saying, you know, here's how we will rectify that. So mm -hmm. if a particular exam had had a bug and therefore people had been dropped off the system during et cetera, et cetera, and the stress that goes with that, determining how you were going to, reset the benchmark for them in order to ensure they didn't lose that work and all the effort mm. and just putting a fairness lens over things. So we heard Kate Morris from Adore talk about through COVID the need to communicate and communicate daily with your customers and your staff of whom were a version of your customers. Mm -hmm. So I think it came down to that. So the board's role was largely about being kept abreast of what went on and actually just very quickly going, okay, let's get it out there. You know, you can't ever be afraid to message. Mm. And you are much better to deliver bad news quickly. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know? And when people are feeling anxious about it, it's just like, well, yep, whoops, that didn't go according to plan, let's fix it. And that's where you can't be obsessed by numbers. You have to be obsessed by heart. So I'm wondering also then, how did the board look after themselves in all of this? Because it was clearly... Here we are. We are talking about the pandemic, even though yeah, um, that's right. we, we can't not talk about it in some yeah. ways. But in fact, even if it wasn't pandemic prompted, if an organisation is going through transformational growth, you've said part of the role is to support the CEO and the executive team, yet you're all doing new things at a pace. How do you support yourselves in that as well? Because no doubt it's anxiety inducing for the board as well. It's like, sure, go off and do your thing. Oh my God, I hope it's okay. Yeah, I think that... Uh, You need to be very collegial and collaborative through that piece. So whilst on issues and decisions you may have some dissent and then you come out with a decision, you know, on the heart side of things, you know, the board needs to have enough uh, care and consideration for each other. Two key people usually that you need to care the most about is that one would be the chair because whatever happens, they're doing two or three times the amount of work and having two or three times the amount of constancy of conversation. So they are the ones probably under the most significant stress, Mm. particularly during tough times. And the CEO or in some of our organisations we have a president, so in charge accounts we have a president. Mm. So they're also fronting the entire membership body of, you know, 160,000 people or whatever. And so, you know, those two people you need to really check in on a lot. But on other boards I'm on in the listed space, you know, again, chairs are very busy. Mm. But the chair was also in... My, on my three listed boards, the chair would check in with the directors and just say, are we okay? You know, mm. how are we doing? How is everyone feeling? And I think you need to have enough of a relationship side to uh, to do that. Yeah. I have to say, and I'll do a plug here for it, that women are better at this than men. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but women are by virtue of how we are wired, more collaborative, more collegial, and generally just more caring. We're all about bringing people along with us. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason, here's my plug, to have a gender-based, biased board. Yes. Yeah, have that equality in the boardroom so that you've got that mix. Yeah, and those kind of skills go with that, right? So if you lay your skills through that we talked about earlier, you get both that. Yeah, yep. There was uh, lots of conversation at the conference, of course, about diversity and so on, and I think that thought diversity so to speak, comes from all of the other forms. If you've got older people and younger people and men and women and people from different cultural backgrounds and, you know, different gender and sexuality and all of those sorts of things, if you've got all of those people in the boardroom, people with a disability, you are much more likely to have the thought diversity. absolutely. And the thing for me is you have to then have a voice. Mm. You know, my favourite phrase at the moment is, you know, diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. (laughs) And if you're not asked to dance, there's no point, right? Yes. Because you are literally just sitting there warming a seat. Yep. And no matter what your gender or any other particular diversity that you bring, if you are there and you either don't feel invited or you don't use the opportunity to take a forward front, then you are actually wasting your time and everybody else's. So you have to make sure you choose carefully and you actually are invited to dance. Mm. There you go. Back to the theme from your mum as well around inclusion. <laughs> yes. Oh, I knew this would happen. Where The time goes so quickly in these conversations. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? 
I would love people to go, let's just sit back and think about where the business needs to go and what's the right makeup of the board. Mm -hmm. Don't rule people out without getting to meet them and talk to them because I don't think a resume necessarily does justice to what people can bring. Mm. And I think when you are invited to a board or a even a recruitment process, really consider what value you bring and what you can deliver and make sure you are delivering from a contemporary market kind of landscape. And I would really ask chairs and uh, recruitment firms, et cetera, to widen their lens beyond having people that have to be sector-specific only mm -hmm. on a board and to consider what skills people bring and how to reinterpret that skills matrix. Is there a resource that you would like to recommend for the Take On Board community? One of the ones I love, and this is my entrepreneurial spirit coming through because I'm, a, you know, I'm all about new things, new age things, but I love NPR's How I Built This podcast where you hear from, yes, very famous organisations and their founders to very lesser known organisations and founders and when they talk about the ups and downs as they grew those businesses and I love the fact that they've had highs, they've had lows, they have tips and tricks for how you build out of those and this is how you get growth. And I find those things really inspiring. Fantastic. There's another one for me to add to my listening list. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Take On Board podcast. I have no doubt uh, that people will get a lot out of the conversation that we've had. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation. Bye.